Εγόμενουν, άτε και γνώσκο παρέινεκα, και τιμώσε τούτοις χούις τον χάνο δυνάμενος. Μπούλουνται και τους άλλους, ο περίπωναρκόμενος με τας ειτσισμένας άγιν σου ειντόρεας, ασφημείς πολύ πλέον ως αγοράζεται παρά τον διδούντον, ε παρά τον πολλούντον, αλλά το ιάωτας χάις καν σφόντρα κρέι και με δεμίαν χαίμεραν διαλύπες, ου κατατρύψεις, αλλά μίσδους και πλέον ως αξίας ποιέσεις. Welcome to uh, the Rhetorical Leadership Podcast. What you just heard there was uh, the uh, ending of the letter to Nicocles written by um, written by uh, Isocrates. And this is uh, a letter that has been called the Royal Art because it explains what a, a good king should do and how a good king should uh, act towards his subjects and towards the state and so on. And how what gifts of reasoning they should have. And uh, this is as an introduction for what we're going to be discussing today, which is... Isocrates, the old man eloquent. And to, with me today I have again Dr. Enos. I introduced you last time, but uh, so uh, uh, welcome to the podcast, uh, Dr. Enos. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad we have a chance to talk about Isocrates and his contributions because I think uh, really almost more than anyone other than Aristotle, they really set the tone and explain the nature of of ancient rhetoric, I uh, was thinking that readers might be interested in uh, linking what we did last, our last podcast, because in that last podcast, in addition to explaining what we generally understand to be ancient or classical rhetoric, I also mentioned what I thought were some of the most important contributions of the 20th century. And I think a case could be made pardon me, that one of the most important contributions of the 20th century would be the rediscovery of Isocrates. Of rhetorical By that I mean, you know, just what he contributed to the history of rhetoric. Uh, what I'd like to do today is to talk about why uh, he was initially controversial, even in his own time, and then how scholars began <clears throat> in the 20th century especially, and also into the 21st century, to really recognize and explain his contributions, and then to explain what they are, especially through some of the principal works uh, that he made during his incredibly brilliant and long career particularly at the beginning and especially at the end of his career. Um, I think that the controversy over Isocrates, the initial controversy, stems right at the height of his uh, popularity when he was alive. And I know this will be sound a little odd for listeners, but I hope you'll bear with me. We see Isocrates mentioned in one of the most important dialogues on rhetoric offered by Plato, and that dialogue is the Phaedrus. Mm -hmm. And in the Phaedrus, the dialogue character, Socrates, who was in real life the teacher of Plato, um, is explaining what he thinks would be the best version of rhetoric. In Plato's earlier dialogue, 
Plato was very critical of rhetoric as practiced by Socrates, by Sophists. And by the way, so was Isocrates. But Plato lumps Isocrates in with the Sophists earlier. A case could be made for that. So when this dialogue has um, was presented, there is a time difference which readers have to recognize. Within the dialogue itself, that is the uh, dramatic date, in this dialogue, Isocrates is presented as a very young and upcoming individual with great talent and great potential. And toward the end of the dialogue, Phaedrus, he's, uh, Socrates is asked by Phaedrus, well, is there anyone who can approach this ideal that you've been discussing throughout our entire conversation? And Socrates, in this drama presented as a real dialogue, says, well, there is a young man who I think, and he has this expression, tis philosophia, has something of philosophy within him. Now, uh, and so he, and that's Isocrates. And then he goes on, he, Socrates, the character, goes on to explain this dialogue written by Plato, that these are the reasons why I think that's the case. Now, in actuality, in the real date, by the time the Phaedrus was presented, uh, Isocrates was already a well-established rhetorician, and he was well-established not by the reasons that were indicated by Socrates in the date. So it's controversial because sometimes people think that although Plato is praising Isocrates within the dialogue as being this young man with great potential, in actuality, he's condemning him because he never followed the path of philosophy. A philosophy. Now, uh, <clears throat> this legacy was like a lot of the dialogues of Plato was taken literally as uh, a condemnation of Isocrates. Or underhanded compliment. Underhanded compliment, damning by uh, faint praise, whatever. There's a number of fallacies that could qualify for this. And so... Uh, that compounded <clears throat> by the fact, pardon me, that Aristotle, when he wrote his rhetoric, and Aristotle wrote his rhetoric at the height of Isocrates' popularity, that he, that Aristotle said he wanted to write a, a rhetoric that was, in a sense, a corrective to what he thought was the work of Isocrates on rhetoric. Well, this just added to the criticism. And so uh, we began with real controversy. Was Isocrates beneficial? Was he helpful? Were his contributions important? Well, we know the Romans thought that Isocrates was very valuable and influential. Cicero discusses him many times with great admiration. Calls him old man eloquent, right? Yes, and uniting wisdom with eloquence is credited 
the, the idea that Cicero popularized in Rome is widely credited to the work of Isocrates. And Quintilian, when he was establishing his curriculum that included rhetoric as the pinnacle, does throughout his work, Quintilian's work, the Institutes of Oratory, Institutio Oratoria, is very, very clearly praising the contributions of Isocrates. Well, Isocrates <clears throat> was criticized for not having, quote, good philosophy. Mm. But we have to remember that it's not that Plato recognized rival philosophies. He only saw the philosophy of Socrates, his mentor, as credible. And so he disparaged the work of Sophus and he disparaged the work of Isocrates because it didn't fit or wasn't in harmony with the views that he thought philosophy should have. So right from the beginning, we re have to realize that Isocrates presented what we now think is a rival philosophy, one based on uh, social benefits and civic functioning. Practical knowledge. Practical knowledge uh, as different in starting points from the very views of Plato and the views that so influenced Plato by his mentor, Socrates. So for many, many centuries, philosophers did not recognize the contributions of Isocrates. But in the 20th century, as I'll try to show, not only philosophers, but other scholars, especially history, historians of rhetoric, began to re-examine the works of Isocrates and, and recognize, as the Romans had done, his, his Isocrates' great contributions. And uh, just uh, to uh, put in a little bit uh, from uh, Jeffrey Walker there, he talks uh, just, just briefly, um, that um, if you actually look at the impact that Isocrates had compared to what Aristotle had, he said, if you look at how many manuscripts there are of, uh, of the different ones, um, the Aristotle's rhetoric at the time could have been seen as a sort of commercial flop. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, Isocrates is replicated and replicated, and uh, Aristotle becomes a little bit um, uh, what uh, what he says a little bit out on the out on the uh, ebb. And uh, in uh, De Oratore, uh, Marcus Antonius, I believe, talks about uh, how uh, Aristotle uh, cribbed a lot of things from Isocrates and then added a few things of his own. <laughs> Well, I think <clears throat> that's one of the reasons, and that's an excellent point, and the work of Walker deserves all the great plays, praise that it receives. But that's one of the things that makes the studying of Isocrates so exciting. That is, that as we can now have a perspective and look back, we have a much better picture of understanding Isocrates than we did prior to the 20th century. And that's not to discredit the contributions of Aristotle or Plato. It's just to give Isocrates the credit that he rightly deserves. Exactly. And I'm also wondering if uh, this uh, focus on Aristotle um, is perhaps a bit more recent than we think, uh, because uh, the uh, as long as Latin was a study, people studied Cicero like crazy. 
uh, and through Cicero, you came to Isocrates very often because because he does replicate a lot of the patterns of Isocrates. Um, Queen Elizabeth used to read Isocrates all the time, um, and also called him the the eloquent one. Uh, the he was uh, uh, seen also very favorably, but favorably I believe by George Campbell and the uh, Scottish Enlightenment rhetoricians. Uh, and uh, so this uh, privileging of Aristotle and uh, uh, his philosophical rhetoric, you could say. Um, I wonder, I'm wondering how recent of a phenomenon that it actually is. Well, I think you're, you're correct, because if we look at the history of education in the West, we know that Latin dominated, um, despite all the prestige associated with Greek, Latin was dominated, and Cicero was the very, very, very popular author. The stylist par excellence, right, of, of, of Latin yes. grammar. And if you go back to very important uh, introductory works of Latin, such as Wheelock's Latin, which is now in its seventh edition, you will see that many of the passages to illustrate eloquent Latin and excellent grammar are quoted uh, throughout the work from Cicero's contributions. So we tend to think that although Aristotle was <clears throat> so popular in the 20th century, we forget that, as you said, that for much of the earlier history, especially in the Latin-speaking West and the Latin-reading West, where access to education often came through Latin, just how dominant Cicero was, and we'll be talking about Cicero, but it's important to stress that here because many of Cicero's ideas initiated from the work of Isocrates. Well, what was it about uh, Isocrates that earned him this well-deserved recognition in the early 20th century, in the 20th century and into the 21st century? Well, as you said, there was there were individuals who recognized Isocrates before that time. You mentioned Queen Elizabeth, Campbell. We could even say that uh, the, the great Greek scholar uh, of the 19th century, uh, Jeb, in his work on Attic Orators, which presented the canon of great rhetors and rhetoricians, listed Isocrates as among them. Uh, so we have that in the, in the 19th century. But in the 20th century, H.I. Moreau, in his work, A History of Education in Antiquity, called Isocrates the first literate rhetorician. In other words, while many of the rhetors, the speakers and the rhetoricians, the theoreticians dominated in the study of oratory, we see with Isocrates how important written rhetoric was, and how he, Isocrates, elevated that. Moreau, <clears throat> in fact, went on to say that Isocrates developed an entire mental culture, that's his phrase, mm. because, of his, because of Isocrates' work. A German scholar, Werner Jaeger, in his work Paideia, called Isocrates the father of humanities. And Friedrich Solmsen, in his work talking about the Aristotelian tradition, took time to recognize what he called the ratio, which in Latin means like a system, 
Uh-huh. It's in some ways equivalent of the Greek term techni or art. The ratio isokratia, that the curriculum for education was heavily influenced by the educational contributions and rhetoric dominated in those contributions of Isocrates. I think one of the great works that really should be recognized is one you've already mentioned, and that is <clears throat> Jeffrey Walker. Uh, throughout his study, the genuine teachers of this art, rhetorical education in antiquity, which was published in 2011, did a tremendous amount to really solidify the contributions of Isocrates. And there is a very nice work that was published a year after Walker's 2012, done by in philosophy by Tarek Wari, W-A-R-E-H, that gives credit in philosophy for Isocrates' contributions. And his work is called The Theory and Practice of Life, Isocrates and the Philosophers. And in this work, he talks about how the differences between Plato and Isocrates, and we can begin to see that, as I mentioned in the Phaedrus, Mm. carried on with the schools of Plato, his academy, and Isocrates' school long after they both were gone, and there were bitter bitter rivalries. Well, uh, in background, uh, you can begin to see how Isocrates was respected despite the criticisms of some of these scholars in his own contemporary Athens. He was an Athenian. He came from a good family, but the family's wealth was devastated and he was compelled to turn toward earning money. Remember, Socrates thought you should teachers should not be paid for their gifts, which today we would say is, at least impractical, right. if not impossible. So- Socrates uh, essentially <laughs> said that only the uh, the elite could then be teachers, right? Right, and the of course Plato came from a, wealthy. a very wealthy and established family. How much do you think, uh, so, um, I don't want to digress too much, but you oh, think, yeah. think there's a bit of uh, overclass snobbishness uh, that has to do with this, that uh, is one of the reasons why I, Socrates gets this bad rap from Plato and and so on yeah there there is this attitude that you know that college was uh at least in america initially the uh privilege and the entitlement of the wealthy right and and so, with the exception of preachers that that there would be that they also would benefit and uh <clears throat> this attitude i think draws from the early views where uh, individuals were trained to be leaders of their communities. Mm. Um, and this was certainly true in England and with Oxford and Cambridge, that these schools were established to help train the leaders of the British Empire. Um, in America, Yale University used to and may still have the slogan that they've uh, that their incoming freshman class has just accepted the next 1,000 leaders of their country, or words (laughs) to that effect. So we see that, and a lot of that came from the rich and powerful. There's even in a story, whether it's apocryphal or not, 
and one of the professors at Oxford, when he uh, after he passed, was having his office uh, cleaned out, and they saw that he had never really cashed any of his paychecks. He just used them as bookmarkers. He didn't <laughs> need to pay, but that wasn't the true for all the rest of us poor teachers who. I mean, that's uh, and uh, what uh, with Boris Johnson, Eton just had its what twenty third prime minister that came from Eton or something like that. Uh, yes, we it, and we and we see that with that and that attitude. I think draws from the way that classical education was perceived. The, the only prep school that has a good rhetoric program, program by the way, Eton. <laughs> well, I didn't know that. They have a very uh, famous rhetoric program, yeah, but uh, but for the elite, right? <laughs> and I also want to mention, and this isn't stressed, that even though um, there's a famous stories that Isocrates himself wasn't the sort of robust, powerful speaker, mm-hmm. he had vocal limitations that somebody such as Demosthenes would be. Right, because he didn't have ampli- uh, amplification in those days. You had to have a strong right. voice, right? Yes, and there's a wonderful study about the Penix, the the main speaking center. I think we mentioned where Christopher Johnstone mentioned last time, uh, actually did acoustical studies. But just like we can think of a Shakespearean actor as being able to project without screaming, Isocrates evidently did not have this capacity. But he was, of course, a brilliant writer and a brilliant rhetorician. And um, his wisdom was widely read recognized so for example when there were embassies from athens to go for example to macedonia and see philip and his young son alexander isocrates was selected as one of the presbyters or the elder to go and represent athens so we can begin to get a sense of how well respected he was in the community, although he did have his critics. He would, didn't, was not just a teacher. Um, right. And uh, as we'll, we'll come on to a little bit later, but the the um, spe- speech that he, uh, or the pamphlet, whichever one, but that he wrote on the piece uh, really uh, is advocating for a certain diplomatic arrangement or a peace uh, for Athens, but then goes beyond that and says, like, let's have peace now and forever uh, by no longer dominating these others, but have a a union of states that uh, have equality among themselves. Uh, yes. And, and respect <clears throat> each other's rights. And we need to recognize how uh, farsighted this vision was. It is true in the history of Greece that dominance was attributed to powerful city-states, Sparta, Athens, Corinth, Thebes are all examples at various times. Mm. And there were confederacies and alliances. The Delian Confederacy, the Dorian Hexopolis are all examples of city-states coming together, often because of ethnic associations, but still coming together. But Isocrates' contribution was to talk about Panhellenism of seeing and seeing rhetoric not just as a tool for individual advancement. In other words, you and I study rhetoric and this helps us, but as a tool of a civic power 
to help unite people together. And this notion of Pan-Hellenism is a major contribution, I think, of Isocrates. And then uh, in contrast to this vision of him, we have, you know, some of these, I've read from several people, you know, where people write, oh, he was just a teacher of style and uh, used that style to express somewhat bland ideas. And uh, uh, if we look at the uh, some of these uh, books on, on introduction to classical rhetoric, you still see some that have about three pages on Isocrates and about 50 pages on, on Aristotle. Uh, and so I agree with those with those views, <laughs> so as I, I guess is obvious in what I'm saying. Yeah, it was that was in, in the synoptic, uh, I think uh, the synoptic overview or introduction to classical uh, rhetoric. That one still had just about three to five pages of of uh, Isocrates and and thirty page or fifty pages on uh, Aristotle. Um, well, but, I think that that you know would be. Uh, something that should be reconsidered, not to diminish the works of Aristotle, but to heighten the contributions of Isocrates. I definitely think so. And uh, the, uh, But perhaps uh, it would be good to kind of set the stage a little bit. So he is destitute, and uh, Athens by this time is a democracy, has uh, thrown off uh, the tyrant, have established laws under Solon, um, and yeah. uh, they ha- now have... A democracy, they have <clears throat> law, cor- law courts where you have to represent yourself. Uh, but obviously, people are unequally gifted in speaking, and so people uh, there arise the 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 sophists, right? As yeah. these speech, speech writers, sophists. speech writers. Yes, and those speech writers or logographers were very, very uh, important because even though, as you said, individual citizens. And that had a very restricted meaning in Athens. That citizen meant that you had to be an Athenian, which meant that both of your parents had to be Athenian. So even one of the children, the children of uh, Pericles did not qualify. As an Athenian, yeah. And Pericles, just to show that, was one of the greatest leaders of Athens, uh, like ever. Yeah, he was a famous general and leader of Athens. And uh, but the, a but main the, force but, in the building of the uh, Parthenon. But initially, sophist had a positive connotation, right? We, t- we refer to uh, Solon and these others as one of the seven sophists. Uh, so back in the ancient or the early days of Athens, sophist was a not a derogatory term. No, it meant a wise person. Right. And, and then, just as we could say this, to give you an example, these, these individuals, <laughs> these wise people who weren't well Isocrates was from Athens but wise individuals who were not from Athens were called medics Mm. and they were attracted to Athens because of the democracy and their love for education Pericles in his funeral oration said that he wanted Athens to be considered um, a school for all of Hellas for all of Greece all of them can come here and, and pertain or obtain our, our learning. Right. And just as America, uh, when there was the rise of fascism in Europe, uh, developed the Institute for Advanced Study and actively sought to take and welcome with open arms the great thinkers of Europe right. 
probably the most obvious example is Einstein. But also Niels Bohr came to... And yeah, and, and to allow them mm-hmm. to, uh, to, to think and practice their arts without restrictions. In fact, to be compensated and encouraged to do so. So Einstein literally had his house in Princeton right. and walked to the Institute of Advanced Study, I'm told. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There's several people talked about how they, they saw him when they were driving up there. He was one of the attractions. Yes, yes. Well, what is it about the contributions of Isocrates that you and I have been discussing that really warrant such high praise? Well, I've condensed some of these, and but one of them that I've already alluded to is that his views were not, quote, were not bad philosophy, but rather a different notion of philosophy, one based on civic rhetoric and Panhellenism. And that uh, was a mindset that was tremendously different and in some cases probably resisted by some of his contemporaries because uh, it was so unique compared to the way others were trained to think. I think the other important contribution is that Socrates saw rhetoric, especially written rhetoric, as uh, not something that we just teach to children and that they uh, learn how to write early in their education, although that is a critical skill, and we do need to teach writing at that level, just as in America, colleges require, most colleges require students to have, to, to have writing uh, as a part of their core or basic curriculum. So no matter what area you're in, whether it's technology, the arts, humanities, you have to demonstrate ability in writing or what Socrates would have considered to be written rhetoric. But in addition to all of that, Socrates saw rhetoric as a sophisticated, complex process, as we do today. It's not just something that is basic, and um, simple, but as a complex process and a skill worthy of developing in higher education. And there is evidence that in his own school of advanced study, which uh, where that training could last up to three to four years, writing civic rhetoric played a, a central role. And this explains in part why so many of his students became some of the most prominent leaders in Greece and also excellent writers about their views. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we talk about a couple of them, right? So I just uh, mentioned them briefly. Um, they talk about that uh, some of his students were um, uh, Theopompus, uh, but uh, Isaeus was one of them, I believe. Is that right? In in my work, um, the book I did on Greek rhetoric before Aristotle, right? I I mention and discuss Theopompus, Isaeus, Lysurgus, Hyperides. Uh, so a lot, a, a lot of them. List. Yeah, we know almost a hundred student individuals. <clears throat> pardon me, who uh, who went to the school of Isocrates. 
And as you indicated, many of them are now recognized as very important leaders of, of, of Greece. So the legacy that he presented was really a very powerful and influential one and sustained. And after his death, there was a school of Isocrates that persisted. <clears throat> and this is where that book by Warren um, really details very well. Mm. Um, I think if you want to look at works of Isocrates that emphasize some of the major contributions that we've talked about, uh, in addition to his speeches, which as you show are very important and worthy of a lot more attention than we can give today. But in terms of his more, quote, philosophical works, one was his early work on the Sophists, mm. where he contrasted um, with rhetoric individual power and more of a civic orientation. So he tried to distance himself from the sophists of his day and show that his version of rhetoric was um, an inherently better perspective to take. Because to, to say, like, uh, politically, you could say he com comes out against both parties, right? Uh, so we have, just at the stage of it, we have the, the sophists that are these who write the defense speeches, right? For right, or the speeches or accusation or defense, um, and and help with the law. So you could say, in some ways, lawyers, right? And lawyers can be good or bad, but you know there are a lot of bad jokes about lawyers, uh, <laughs> being, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, that they're the the scum of the earth and so on, right? So, and um, in the worst case, they're seen as just mercenaries, and whoever can pay the most gets the best speech and wins. Is kind of the idea. And that's censored by the philosophical school, philosophical school, which looks at, look, these don't care about truth at all. Everything's just uh, just relative to them, and they're just looking for whatever works. In the and moment. here, you know, we begin to see the conflicts, even with Locke, because we'll say, well, the system we've given these advocates is that you have to make the best case. You have to be honest, but you have to make the best case, whether it's on defense or prosecution because we're seeking after justice right justice is the goal dk justice where everyone in the same category gets treated the same way so in other words if someone convincingly argues that this person ought to be viewed as a murderer then the justice is well what are the consequences of being convicted of a murder and this person fits in that category so, and, and, uh, so they're duty-bound to right. give the best case. Right. That's and, their job. And uh, but the, I guess the as you as you see with lawyers, you know, this if you some people say, well, as long you can get away with murder as long as you hire the right lawyers, right? That's usually not <laughs> that's that's not always the case. But you know, hear the O.J. Simpson trial and other things, right? Yes. That, you know, we've all heard about how lawyers are able to kind of twist. Uh, twist facts, or or, and there is there is a power in eloquence uh, or in, in in rhetoric to make a convincing case, even for something that shouldn't necessarily be convincing. Yes, uh, and we will see when we discuss Cicero, who was without question one of the greatest, if not the greatest, advocate of the Roman Republic, that his power of eloquence 
became a source of political power for him. He established clientele who uh, he had benefited from his legal arguments and returned the favors because even in Rome, advocates were not directly paid. I mean, you could argue indirectly they were given gifts and patronage and, but the idea of accepting money for this. But Cicero also goes on to talk about the greatest benefit of rhetoric is that you can train people to serve the state. Right. And this uh, is, you know, in his Republic, he makes it clear the value of serving the best interests of the Republic. And, and so Isocrates, he takes this handcraft that he practiced himself. He had to, that was part of how he made, uh, you know, was able to survive when the family's fortune was lost. Uh, but he takes it and he elevates it to, mm-hmm. to a, a higher stage. Uh, he talks about, uh, and he, he kind of, uh, in against the sophists, sophist, I think it's almost like a, he could be seen as a pamphlet for his school where he like, he yes. uh, attacks the philosophers and he attacks the sophists and he puts himself kind of in the middle between them yes. as something both more practical than the philosophers and more principled than the sophists. Yes, he, he is, <clears throat> as we would say in America, thinking outside the box and reconceptualizing. Just as if, David, we had said in the middle of the 20th century, well, writing is a very sophisticated cognitive process and one that merits very serious study because of the consequences of literacy. Well, you would have had very few advocates of that view. Nowadays, it's accepted as commonplace. Yes, it, although you can learn to read and write very Basics. early, mm-hmm. it is still a very complex process and the different ways of thinking and expressing those thoughts are central to education and need to be developed because just because you can learn to read and write young in a young age doesn't mean that you have tapped into all the potential that writing could offer. Can you imagine, for example, I used to tell my students, if Einstein had been unable to articulate his views on relativity, He understood them. He knew them. He could not express those ideas. So so a lot of the physicists have argued that one of the capacities of making contributions in theoretical physics is the ability to express the views of theoretical physics to people who actually may resist them. If they came out, uh, for example, having been taught about that the principles of Newton were actual actual and how to perceive nature initially there would be resistance to the views of people such as einstein who were offering a completely different parallel well if you take that example and you plug in isocrates you can see that his contemporaries had a view that rhetoric equaled what the sophists did that a view that plato advocated was what philosophy was and Isocrates is, is advocating not only a different view of rhetoric from the sophists, but a different view of philosophy from Plato. And so we could call it uh, perhaps uh, philosophic rhetoric is what he's, what he's offering. Well, I think it is. And, we, and we, we see that, that rhetoric has a philosophical basis. 
and worthy of reflection and study and uh, a vision of how it contributes to education. And I think what he, I mean, what he says today is still very relevant for, in some ways, the different branches of education we have. On the one hand, perhaps the we say the uh, education that is all about job preparation, right? Yeah. That could be more like where the sophists is, uh, to to a certain extent, what they're teaching. Um, mm-hmm. And on the other hand, you have the perhaps the kind of uh, high-minded subjects that become a bit too ivory tower, right? Where uh, he says that essentially the philosophers have uh, of his age have too um, too little epistemic humility. They claim they can teach you the truth about the past, the future, (laughs) the present, uh, everything that and the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and they don't have access to that. Uh, And and uh, in the end, you get uh, you don't get any advice on what to do in everyday life. Yes, and I just like we can say that there is absolute wonderful merit in trade schools where you learn a skill and you contribute to society by doing that. But, and this isn't an opposite, in fact, this is very much, I think, a part, there should be those individuals who stop and say, what really is the mission and vision of this trade, of this craft, and what ought we to do? Like, for example, uh, we train doctors. And one of the things I have mentioned is we should reflect on what really is the, the nature of a hospital. What should a hospital do? Should it just care for the people who are injured or sick? Should it try to anticipate problems? Should it be seen it, that psychological well-being is as important as physical well-being? Uh, but there should be a point of reflection. Mm-hmm. And uh, even race car engine, uh, race car industry looks and says, "Well, what really is an an engine?" And the old model of just a strict piston-driven engine maybe needs to be reconceptualized as it was with the turbine engine. It's just completely different, right? And so, in everything, and I Socrates was include, saying, including education and rhetoric there should be a kind of a philosophical perspective and reflection on what its nature is and how it contributes. And so he talks about uh, in, um, uh, just to give, give an example here. So he, uh, he seems to have a view of, of knowledge that is much more um, humble in many ways. Yeah. Like he says, for example, Okay, I, Socrates claims that he that if you can teach uh, at his school, he'll make you a good person. And he says, well, I I see that there doesn't exist the art that can make a good person out of a terrible person, but that the mind, by studying things that are elevated, might also be invited to become elevated, but it, there's no guarantee there. Uh, and uh, he talks about that uh, in just briefly in antidosis, how that uh, I elected to speak and write not on petty disputes, but on subjects so important and so elevated that no one would attempt them except those who had studied with me (laughs) and there, and and there would be imitators, you know, but, 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 you know, that what I'm doing here is not just kind of, you know, law court disputes. Um, 
and he talks about that uh, that this is something that's 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 more elevated. This is goes a bit beyond that. This is more about who we want to be as a society, for example, as in on the peace. Um, this has more to do with uh, not just gaining uh, the most money in a in a dispute or winning a dispute, uh, but what is the nature of of justice that we can have in our society. Um, and uh, on the other hand, he says, many want to do some good in the world must banish utterly from their interests all vain speculation and activities which had no bearing on our lives. <laughs> and he says, you know, that philosophy can be good for your brain exercise and stuff like that, but uh, but uh, far too often they end up uh, just speaking to themselves and tie themselves in knots um, and they don't come with any kind of practical implementation of, okay, what does this do for society? Yes, how does this benefit society? And I think uh, those ideas are so important. Uh, ancient Greeks, especially Athenians, uh, believed that if you, as you said, if you were educated, they hoped, they thought their goal was that you became a better person. So the term metamorphosis, a transformation, a growth, a development is rooted it's a Greek word that's rooted in this idea of education. You grew, you blossomed. That, but of course, you said that could also be abused. That could also be corrupted, where you could have many brilliant people who were are unethical. Mm-hmm. We would even accuse some people of that today that they misuse their talent and gifts and don't benefit people. They either benefit themselves or their own particular interests. And that and perhaps that, for that that person it would be better if they weren't educated because <laughs> you know and, and that's and they're condemned for that. So in some ways we still cling to the idea. We just recognize that it can be abused. Right. As, I mean, both Harry, Harry Potter and Voldemort both went to Hogwarts, right? <laughs> You're right. Good. Good point. Well, I think some of uh, of the best ideas of Isocrates are explained explained in his later work when he which he wrote when he was very old because he was challenged that at his elderly age, if he still had the sagacity uh, to teach, if he wasn't senile, I guess we would say nowadays. And this work antidosis is definitely one of my favorites of Isocrates because he says so much that resonates about the consequences of his own decades of teaching and experiences. He talks about the importance of the mind and the body. We all know the famous expression, a sound mind in a sound body. And I think the roots for that are here in the antidosis of Isocrates. He talks about the importance of talent, practice, and experience. I used to be a uh, collegiate tennis player. And um, you can have some talent. I didn't have much, but I was a hard worker. And you can develop that talent. Uh, you can have, you have to have practice to do that. But it doesn't, practice does not capture the same as experience of actually playing in a match. Mm. And you have to have that, the experiential knowledge of doing it. Uh, one of the most important concepts in ancient Greece is pronounced either sophrosine or sophrosine, and it means self-knowledge and self-restraint. We talked 
we've always heard about the Greeks talking about nothing in excess, nothing too much. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that you are a passive or indecisive individual. It's just that you are in control. So for example, maybe there's a person who by their nature has a terrible temper and has anger management issues, but this person has enough self-knowledge and self-control that they can restrain that and not do it, that they can be under control. Mm. And so the idea is that you are training students to have, to really understand themselves. Maybe even we would say to be happy in your own skin, but to understand your strengths and your weaknesses Mm -hmm. and the self restraint to realize that you have to live in a culture and in a society with other people. And I think these are really important points, not just for the study of rhetoric, but in, as we've discussed, Isocrates quote philosophy of life in the role that that those lives play in society. I also think it's very important the way he, um, uh, his epideictic on language, which is uh, replicated again later by Cicero, by Quintilian, I believe um, that where he has this view that about the institutions and the way that, language and the ability to persuade each other and to reason about things and to come with these civic ideas really yeah. have built uh, the this these wonderful structures that do so much for good for society um i'll just uh, it's a bit of a longer passage but i'd like to read it um read it through this uh, this his uh, epideictic on language please um that um, this is the uh, that we shouldn't show ourselves ignorant toward that power which of all the faculties this is an antidosis um, which belong to the nature of man is the source of most of our blessings for in the the power which we possess as I have already said on a former occasion we are in no respect superior to other living creatures in in our physical power uh, nay we are inferior to many in swiftness and in strength and in other resources. But because there has been implanted in us the power to persuade each other and to make clear to each other whatever we desire, not only have we escaped the life of wild beasts, but we have come together and founded cities and made laws and invented arts. And generally speaking, there is no institution devised by man which the power of speech has not helped us to establish. For for this it is which has laid down laws concerning things just and unjust, and things honorable and base. And if it were not for these ordinances, we should not be able to live with one another. It is by this also that we confute the bad and extol the good. Through this we educate the ignorant and appraise the wise. For the power to speak well is taken as the surest index of a sound understanding, and discourse which is true and lawful and just is the outward image of a good and faithful soul. With this faculty, we both contend against others on matters which are open to dispute and seek light for ourselves on things which are unknown. This is kind of the epistemic kind of searching that we do when we do rhetoric. Uh, For the same arguments which we use in persuading others when we speak in public, we employ also when we deliberate in our own thoughts. And while we call eloquent those who are able to speak before a crowd, we regard as sage those who most skillfully debate their problems in their own minds. 
Would you would you mention to listeners again, please, David, the name of this work so that they can yes, this, refer to it? Again? This is Antidosis, and um, yeah. the sections that uh, that's on ancient texts often referenced by sections, um, yes. starting on two fifty three and going until two fifty. Let's see. 259 about. And I think the reason I mention this is because I think it's such an eloquent statement. There's so much depth to it. Mm. It's one of those works that we need to reread every now and then. And in the spirit of what he's saying, ponder and reflect upon its implications. It's like, how can anyone say that this is a man with just a stylist with bland ideas, right? Very well put. I think that point should be emphasized. Thank you for making it. And what I want to say before we finish is that um, I think one of the things that will be fast, I hope will be fascinating for our listeners is next time we're going to be looking at the views of Aristotle and we will see a different perspective on rhetoric, a very powerful perspective, but a different one. And we are beginning to see that ancient rhetoric is best understood through different adjectives. Here we've seen Isocratean, we've alluded to Platonic. Next time we'll look at Aristotelian, and then eventually we'll look at the views of Romans, especially Cicero and Quintilian. And just as a, a tease, I'd like to just uh, put, so uh, Jeffrey Walker makes a case for the Isocratian tradition of rhetoric. And he says some of the things he, have pretty, he has pretty good arguments for already, and some of the things he speculates but makes a case for. Um, and one of the things that he says is that, some of the things he says is that we have a lot of things that appear kind of out of nowhere um, later, that may very well have been uh, based on the rhetoric of uh, of uh, Isocrates. And it's said that he never wrote a techne, so there's no book that's called Isocrates' Rhetoric, right? We have Aristotle's Rhetoric, that's, you know, one of the cornerstones of any kind of academic study of on rhetoric. Um, but it's said that he never wrote, uh, that Isocrates never wrote a techne, but it may well, very well have been that some of his students put together notes of the things that he had been teaching them, and based on that you get a techne. For example, he makes a case that for, for maybe the uh, rhetoric ad Alexandrum was yes. based on the Isocratian school of, of rhetoric, because many of the ideas that we find in there, we find uh, based on Isocrates' speeches. Um, he also says that Isocrates' speeches may have been used or very likely were used in his school to instruct on and give examples to students of certain principles. And he talks about, for example, that Isocrates shows knowledge of whether or not he called it that, but of stasis theory, that um, you have the arguments of uh, that are suited for certain, uh, for different uh, purposes or dif where different pushbacks will come from the op opposing arguments of uh, fact, definition, uh, uh, quality, and uh, procedure. And uh, also that he may have been the origin of a 
basic form of the progymnasmata, where you build from very basic speeches to more elaborate and more complex speeches through very um, through codified and very uh, pedagogical, inventive um, uh, method of gradual increase in knowledge and in mastery of the written genre, written uh, written genre, um, right. and that this may have also come and and maybe also some of the topoi uh, that we see later in Cicero may also have originated from the school of Isocrates. I think uh, I, if if I'm right, and I'm saying this with real qualifications. Um, I thought that the publishers, the German publishers, Teubner, had presented a collection of what they believed to be the fragments of Isocrates' techne, of his work. Um, I have to check that, but I believe that is. But I think Walker is very, very, very helpful in recognizing that there may well have there may well have been a technique that Isocrates wrote and that, as you pointed out, which I think is very important, that there are contributions that came out of the collection of his works that were used in technique that followed. And so uh, we, in some ways we could say that um, we have in Isocrates maybe uh, one of the most powerful pedagogical innovators um, of, of the classical world. I, I absolutely agree. And I think to come full circle back, I think that is why he is receiving such well-earned attention today because people are recognizing the profound contributions that he made to education and what interests us is the central role that rhetoric played in that educational view. I'm also wondering if uh, maybe um, he more than, for example, Aristotle or indefinitely Plato had a kind of democratic vision um, where, whereas Plato had some inclinations that go more in the sign in towards oligarchy or maybe even, even the uh, philosopher King, right. That he talks about. Um, yes, in the and where yeah. you know you have this person that can mastermind everything and just put everything in the right category, um, Isocrates had a sense of the the messiness of the um, uncertainty that imp- that comes with debating probability and trying to make good uh, good decisions together as a people as a, as a demos on. What is sometimes very sparse evidence, or sparse uh, sparse evidence, we're just trying to make the best uh, de- best um, deliberation. Seek light for ourselves in the darkness, as it says. We seek light for ourselves, uh, trying to inch forward in the darkness, arguing on probability, trying to find the best, most ethical way of, of proceeding forward as a society, uh, without pretending that we have all knowledge that we have absolute, of all absolute truths. Well, I think uh, what came out of antiquity and contemporary writers as well as ancient ones, especially Polybius, said that of the three major forms of government, uh, a monarchy, a rule by aristocracy, or a rule by the people, that the best form is actually a mixed one. 
That's the same. And Cicero does and, the same in the Republic, right? Right, because each one has its strengths, but it's also its weaknesses. But when you have a mixed one, the role of rhetoric actually gets intensified because you can use checks and balances to argue mm. about what is the best thing to do. And so rhetoric doesn't diminish, but rather it heightens its value when you see its role as trying to um, make sure that the best course of action is done. And, and the constitutions that adopt that, I think, require training in rhetoric. Um, you know, and sometimes in America we say, well, you know, we need leaders who not only are wise, but can express that wisdom eloquently. Right. And some people would say in America, well, who was the last leader who clearly did that and realized the benefits of doing that? And some people would say, well, that would probably be Martin Luther King Jr., mm-hmm. who uh, was able to bring around about civil reform uh, to a large extent and minimize uh, violence and destruction in the process of doing it but rather through convincing people of the consistency of equality with their own starting points in the Constitution and Bill of Rights. And the case that Isocrates makes here, that, that the best speeches are philosophy, you know, that they, they, they have depth in them, that they have truth in them. Uh, you know, read the, the speech on Eye of the Dream. It has force, but it also has... Um, some, some real Ideal philosophical religion. qualities. Yes, and I think we could say that in times of crisis, the British would say that our representative of wisdom and eloquence would be Winston Churchill. Others would say that in India it would be Gandhi. To, you know that, But we can see that across the cultures, the value of uniting wisdom with eloquence is important and that requires a serious training in rhetoric to try to as isocrates say develop your talent through practice and experience so i guess the last question i would like to to ask or to think about and perhaps there's no good answer but uh, they talked about, you know, Isocrates as, what, Pegasus from the head of something, something that was the uh, metaphor, um, as something that flowed out from the from the head of something else, as in the same way from the school of, of uh, Isocrates poured forth a veritable flood of, of talent of giants that would, uh, that would, uh, you know, be, be pillars of Athenian society for many years, for many years to come. And Athenian culture beyond that. Um, and the question is, uh, where where do we have the kind of education that's that's needed to combine wisdom and eloquence today? Um, you know, in some ways, the most uh, famous orators today, we don't have really have a pol- school to become a politician. If anything, that's uh, the lawyers, right? The 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 law, law schools that would be um, in some one place where you're supposed to be able to argue and argument becomes, has a significant uh, focus. Uh, I'm not quite sure, you know, that with our study of, uh, of rhetoric, if it has the uh, necess- necessary 
practical dimension to to educate the next Martin Luther King, say this way, because he had a lot of rhetorical training from all these, you know, from his from his uh, pastoral work, from his yeah. uh, uh, from these Juneteenth celebrations where there were always these orations that that he was able to pull upon this rich rhetorical cool. tradition. Uh, where's where's the school of Isocrates today? Right. Well, I think uh, in America we would see that people such as Martin Luther King Jr. did receive a lot of training and rhetoric through his um, religious education. And when you read works such as Letter from a Birmingham Jail, Mm -hmm. which he composed, obviously, when he was in jail, you can see that he draws from his sermons to make that letter. But to answer your question, do we have that kind of education today? I think we are trying to return to that kind of education. And one of the ways is if you look at the mission and vision statements of universities, you begin to see more and more the importance of training students to be able to contribute toward global problems. And the effectiveness of doing that through peaceful means, such as discussion and deliberation. And as Heim Perlman and Lucy Olbrecht's Titeka said, that the root for such things is a new rhetoric, one based on argument, which, of course, lawyers would have been trained in, because the alternatives to not deliberating and discussing are either ambivalence where you don't care mm. well, everything's, or, everything's relative. or yeah. uh, absolute or violence where people just take over and don't allow you to even have any input. They just, and neither of those extremes are ones that any normal rational person would want. And so the alternative in the middle is to try to do change and seek the best for what is best through rhetorical argument and discourse. And in our next meeting, we will see how Aristotle tries to refine that process of argument and deliberation individually. And and I think that will be uh, a point that will be a, 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 a transition from the work of Isocrates and yet give us a perspective on both, meaning Isocrates and Aristotle. And I guess the the important thing also here is to add the uh, extra dimension that, you know, those who are trained in law, they may learn the sophist art, right? The the basic practice, what is legal or not legal, and what how much how many years in prison can you get for it? But there needs to be that extra dimension of the philosophical rhetoric, right? The the to be able to make the larger arguments about what is good for society, not just what is legal. Uh, what is yeah. the good, the true, the beautiful? Uh, what are the virtues, right? This uh, epideictic rhetoric. Yes, and just as a, 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 an aside, if you want to see that issue about what is the real philosophy of law, there's a wonderful movie called The Paper Chase. <laughs> and The Paper Chase won um, at least one Oscar for Best Picture, uh, one Oscar in its production. 
And it is about a first-year law student at Harvard University in the United States going through these issues. And although it's really just wonderful entertainment, it does have a point, and it makes the point brilliantly at the end. So I would recommend that if anybody is interested in a more contemporary perspective on the contributions that law can make philosophically and to the betterment of society, through rhetoric and argument, especially that they should just enjoy themselves and watch this wonderful movie. Thank you. Well, thank you, David. I've really enjoyed today and I appreciate the opportunity that we had to discuss the contributions of Isocrates. And as I said, next time, Aristotle, the, uh, the, what should we say? The, um, the one who may not be be have been if Isocrates was the pedagogue, pedagogical innovator, um, Aristotle was one who just spelled it all out, just just laid out systematically everything we need to know in order to find the available means of persuasion. Yes, and I think what people come away with when they read Aristotle's rhetoric, which has to be read and reread and reread. Uh, is brilliance. He was a brilliant thinker. And so we're getting one of the best insights to rhetoric that we could ever hope for. We may not agree with all of his views, but but the genius by which he expressed them is worthy of our attention. And also, he, um, shall we say, cleans rhetoric to be uh, appropriate to be used by philosophers. Yes, he, uh, he, he does have a rhetoric. And this is something that later philosophers, again in the 20th century, recognized not just with Isocrates, but rhetoric as a whole. And in fact, there is a journal in America that was established in 1968 called Philosophy and Rhetoric, which was started as a graduate seminar by that title, Philosophy and Rhetoric, at Penn State University with Carol Arnold, a rhetorician from the speech department, speech communication department, and Henry W. Johnstone Jr., a philosopher also at Penn State. And so here, Aristotle, just to see, he takes this powerful system that he sees in work around him and he rehabilitates it for and to take it up into his Aristotelian philosophical school. Yes, and I look forward to discussing the views of Aristotle next time.